Hello, everybody. Welcome to this episode of Canines Talking Sense. I'm your host, Cameron Ford, broadcasting to you from Scent City in Las Vegas at Ford Canine. Canines Talking Sense, the podcast dedicated to everything detection dogs. So, I wanted to get right into this episode. This is a continuation, part two, of my interview with Tobias Gustafson. And this interview, um, the two parts of them, has helped me kind of reaffirm some things that, you know, we see frequently in the detection dog world, and we get ourselves wrapped up on, is it, you know, this side or the other side? Should I be this or that? You know, there's this line we draw in the sand on various training topics. You can either be this or that, and it's, and we can argue and debate very passionately about our point of view. And, you know, when I did this interview with Tobias, you know, I've had my experiences. I have taught uh, lots of different uh, ways of doing things and kind of have had my things that I've liked a lot. And, and, and in that, I have, of course, at times fostered the arguments to one side or another, depending on the topic. So in this interview with him, it also reaffirmed to me that, number one, we're all more alike than we are different. Uh, we tend to pick some small thing uh, and say, this is where our position lies, and we turn a mountain into a molehill. Something that's only not that much different uh, between methodologies becomes this huge debate. So, for example, one of those things is going to be uh, technical as a condition reinforcer, a.k.a. marker, a.k.a. bridge. Um, you're either a person who uses a clicker or a word or a whistle or you're a direct pay. You're the one that tosses a toy uh, at source or you feed at source, et cetera, et cetera. And I have done both sides. I have been passionate at various times about whatever side I was doing. And, you know, over the past, I would say, year or so, I started realizing both are very valuable. Both are very useful. It very much depends on the dog. And as many of you guys have heard me, because of the cognition training that I do and the classes I teach, we should always train for the dog in front of us. And with that means we need to have tools in the toolbox to be diverse enough to work with whatever dogs in front of us. And I'll pass on something a German trainer said to me many years ago when I was in Germany. And I was asking about something in regards to training, like what's a great way to train and this, that, and the other. And his advice was, if I, Cameron, if I gave you five dogs and you train only one way, you will get potentially five different results. But if I gave you five dogs and you are willing to train five different ways, one for each style of dog, you get the one dog or sorry, the one result that you want, which is the, the desired result, the, the thing you're trying to train for. And that point being, if you're flexible and you're willing to adjust to the dog in front of you, you'll get to the result you want. And in this interview with Tobias, we got into uh, the use of markers, you know, the condition reinforcer being verbal or clicker. And we 
talked about the debate that goes on in the detection dog community and his own transformation of when he's used it, why he used it then, and what he does now and how he uses that. In addition to that, we get into the conversations about his use of Kong, which again, depending on certain circles, is fairly controversial in itself. This whole conversation helped me kind of reopen my eyes and say to myself, okay, I need to be willing to evolve always as a trainer. And this was one of those moments where I got to sit back and go, I'm going to evolve. Um, I've been a huge proponent of utilizing a condition reinforcer as one of the most uh, efficient ways of communicating to a dog. And it is. And we talk about that and how powerful it is. But we also talk about some of the significant downsides that comes from that from time to time. And having versatility at the end of the day, having a detection dog that I'm training that understands I might use a signal, so I might use my condition reinforcer, I might come up and deliver reward right there in front of you. Having the ability to have a dog that can do either means I'm more versatile as a handler. I don't have to be one side or the other. I don't have to train this way or that way. If I train my dog to understand through the clarity of my training that any one of these is an option to also include me walking up, hooking you up, and then just saying good job and move away, all of these options give me more options as a handler when working whatever detection dog I have under any number of different circumstances I might face. But if I only train in one way of doing something, I become limited. And that's a big takeaway. We have to be willing to look at what's my dog's job in detection, what circumstances I might face as a handler, and how do I navigate something that might come up. And again, if I have more options or more tools on my tool belt, whatever analogy you want to use, I can do more. I have the ability to still do the job, still communicate to my dog that if they found something, they're right. And I can reinforce them in a couple of different ways, depending on the situation in front of me. And that's huge that to be able to be that diverse as a handler, having multiple tools at me or at my side to work with my dog will make me better and my dog better at the job we're doing. So my takeaway after doing this interview with, with Tobias is I'm going to be even more flexible. I'm going to employ some of the techniques he speaks about because as we get deeper in the interview and you'll hear here is that I'm, you know, there are some significant things that we deal with and I have dealt with and I still deal with from time to time when I'm doing a freeze up indication with a audible condition reinforcer. Um, I've, again, I'm, I don't always use clicker. I don't always use a word. I use both. Um, another argument we, that people get into is do we use food? Do we use toy? And we talk about using both in this podcast. So, I hope at the end of the day that this podcast helps you realize you don't have to be 
food only. You don't have to be toy only. You don't have to be marker only. You don't have to be pay at source only. You know, you don't have to be indirect versus direct. You can do whatever is best for that dog in front of you, whatever is best for whatever detection discipline or sport you're in. Do what works. Be willing to be flexible and apply sound techniques that work for your dog. So I hope you guys enjoy this episode. Uh, like I said, I'm not going to get into a bunch of stuff about Ford K9. I thank my sponsors as usual. You know, Honest Pet Company, Leash and Harness, Coffee, Psy K9, uh, Precision Explosives, Iowa K9. All of you guys, thank you so much for supporting the podcast. And I again, you guys enjoy part two with Tobias Gustafson. And as always, you know how to get a hold of us. Reach out to me on my website or my email, Cameron at FordK9.com. Tobias's contact information will be in the show notes right here. Enjoy the episode. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Canines Talking Sense. This episode is part two with my guest, Tobias Gustafson. Thank you, Tobias, for taking some time to hop back on here again and doing part two. Thank you. Thank you. So we had talked about in part one, play development, search development, and then some variety of rewards to kind of help uh, dogs with their performance. Um, and now that we're in part two, I know we wanted to get into basically indication, uh, odor, all that kind of stuff. So as we've talked before, I know the next step you kind of get into is indication. So go ahead and just take off and, and get into how you go through yeah. the indication process. Yeah, so so we um, through the play development and the search development, that's the parts of the training where we build drive and, and motivation for searching and all that. And the dog is searching for the reinforcer, and uh, we don't uh, ask for an indication at that point, and we don't want an indication at that point. We just want him to to find the reward. Uh, and, and that's one of the good things with using something else than the target odor that we can actually do that for, for a long time. Uh, and that would build the dog's motivation for, for searching. Um, and, and when we come to the next step, we have, um, um, we will start to, uh, what we call the systematic training more or less, uh, where the dog will search for smaller scent pictures and no longer be allowed to grab the toy. And that's the reason why we need an indication at that point. And um, since the dog during the search development phase is searching for the toy, he knows that when he finds it, he can grab it. So that then it's not a problem. But uh, when we start to search for something that we don't want the dog to play with anymore, or uh, it's not considered a toy for the dog at that point when we start search for smaller pieces or smaller scent pictures. Uh, we need something else, and that's where the indication uh, has to to uh, be uh, added to to this chain of behaviors. Mm -hmm. And and the reason then is that when when the dog gets at some distance from us and he finds uh, that odor. 
and uh, the natural thing for a dog to do when he uh, when it's it's not the whole toy so he he doesn't consider it a toy and instead of grabbing it he will turn around and that's where most of the problems starts with handler influence mm-hmm. so the handler becomes part of that uh, stimulus picture so to avoid that we have to have a trained indication so that the dog knows that the end part of this chain of behaviors uh, is to indicate and um, it's back chaining that you we use in in a lot of other types of training almost sure. always when we train a chain of behavior so um uh and and the good thing with that is of course that when the dog finds what what he's looking for he doesn't search for the handler uh, instead he indicates uh and since it is on a distance uh it can be difficult to reward the reaction for example if we haven't uh, a fully trained indication and we want to to reward only the reaction or the change of, of behavior that can be difficult to, mm-hmm. to do on a distance because you will not be able to throw the toy or, or mark the behavior uh, before the dog turns around. And at that point, if we are rewarding too early, it can be an even bigger problem than if we reward too late. The worst thing that can happen if we reward too late is that the dog you know, leaves the hide. And that's quite easy to fix later on. But a bigger problem is if we reward too early, then we will be the one telling the dog where it is. Mm-hmm. And that can be much more difficult to, to fix. For sure. So, uh, and then, that, and that's the reason why I would train the indication as a separate behavior. Uh, and it has to be fully trained or not trained at all before we yeah. add it to a search. Uh, because if it's not fully trained and the dog maybe sits, but he hasn't really learned the focus yet or doesn't focus long enough, then he will still have the time to turn around. And that's the natural thing for a dog to do when he, when he has a problem. He will search for the closest human to help him fix that problem. Yeah. And, and, then, then, and that's where, where we uh, add ourselves to, to that stimulus picture that will cause a lot of problems later on. Because if the dog looks at us later on when we do a, a blind uh, search, we don't know what that means. We don't know if it means that the dog has found something or is he looking at us because he needs help or, yeah. And that's, that's the main problem in, in detection dogs, uh, detection training. So uh, that means that we train the indication separately. But the problem with training the indication too early is that if we haven't done enough of that search development phase, we will get the wrong balance. So we might have a dog who is more interested in finding than searching. Uh, so we have to do a lot of that search development before so we can clearly see that the dog doesn't uh, lose intensity or motivation even though he's searching for five or ten minutes. So we we need to come to a point where we are sure that this dog has enough search motivation. Now, uh, so so then we we train, we start with the indication. I will go through that uh, process also, but maybe you had a question on, on uh, that. No, I was, you brought up a good point and, um, you know, there's, and I've done this myself, uh, the school of thought of 
the word we used was in the military was pay on sniff mm. and or mm. mark on sniff when they first acknowledged that mm. so that way they knew there was importance to that mm. relevant uh, unique odor that was there mm. um, and I definitely can agree with what you're saying too is sometimes paying so fast or marking so fast mm-hmm. um derails your goal of that more solid indication. And like Mm. you brought up on the last episode, um, when there was no position, it was just a freeze type of alert. Some dogs can do this, of course, no problem. But again, a problem Mm. I've known, I've seen, I'm sure others have too, is where that dog nudges or pushes or licks at Mm. the odor source. Um, Mm. So I guess my question would be, you know, still on the same topic. So Mm. how do you go about um, doing this indication behavior? And then um, as you, I guess I'll let you go from the, how you go Mm. about getting the sit in your, in this case, the sit response. And then when the very first time you introduce odor, what are you doing? At that point, I uh, normally do a pairing and that's the, the reason why it is really good. Let's say that you have, I will go through that too, but if you're trained the indication of something else, like mm-hmm. we uh, talked about last time, Kong or yep. whatever, just something else. The good thing with that is that when you start the imprinting uh, and uh, you don't need to, to uh, retrain the indication and start to reward the reaction again, the whole idea with training the indication first and separately is that when you then for example go to the scent wheel and do the imprinting phase you can yep. add that piece of kong for example together with the new target odor mm-hmm. and then you will have the indication already from start so yes. you don't mess up your indication and you don't risk that handler influence mm-hmm. thing so you will get an indication because it is a target odor for the dog and in the next round, you take away the piece of Kong and you only have contamination and the new target. And in the third round, you have no contamination. And then you have just transferred that indication to the new odor without having any problem with messing up the indication. Okay. How do you deal with... So two things for, for me and I'm sure others again. So for me, I like using delayed conditioning. So the dog mm-hmm. has to be in odor. While they're in odor, mm-hmm. of course, I'm going to be reinforcing. So Mm. we're talking literally a two second delay in the, the approach that we're doing. Um, Mm. What have you seen as what's a minus for using delayed conditioning versus simultaneous um, and deliberating with dealing with my argument being I'm, I don't, I have a, I have a struggle with uh, I want my odor to be the pathway to reward, not reward be the pathway Mm. to odor. Yeah, but it's still that the only it's still delayed uh, because uh, the like I said the last time you have two parts of it. Mm-hmm. One is that the dog is sniffing on on the the odor, uh, and then the next thing is that he decides to indicate that he makes the decision of staying, yeah, telling me that yeah. here it is. So. <clears throat> um, the problem with only rewarding that reaction is, first of all, that we need to make sure that we are right. Mm-hmm. I mean, just because the dog is sniffing on something doesn't mean that he 
either uh, that he, that he's made the decision or di- the discrimination. It doesn't say anything about his uh, uh, what he he. Uh, I don't know really how to explain this because it, it's a risk that we just reward uh, um, a change in the in the behavior, not a discrimination. Correct. So then I need to the, the delayed thing here is that I wait for the dog to make the decision and then I reward that decision making. Okay. Since he's indicating. I reward the dog for, for showing some kind of, of reaction to that mm-hmm. odor. Uh, but that reaction can change every time. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, we don't really know how a dog looks when he finds, uh, when he, when he uh, recognizes that odor. We can see an increased intensity or activity, for example. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, that doesn't really tell me anything then uh, that I would really reward. So either I have a tendency at the first step of an indication that that's I, that's something that I do. Uh, if before I have re- uh, have the fully trained indication like a sit and stare, for example, then I can change. I can reward only the first part of it. That is that the dog for example, searching, finding, and I can see that increased intensity. And then I wait for the dog to be still mm-hmm. and pull the head back. That I could reward. But I wouldn't reward when I just see the increased intensity. Sure. You, you see yeah, the difference? Yeah, t- totally, because I still totally. need some kind of decision-making. So, uh, And that is... I need to see some kind of reaction. Sure. Uh, to make sure that first of all, what you could say that we have three steps in, in, in this uh, type of training. We have uh, the detection to see that the dog just you know, can, can sense the smell of this odor. Mm-hmm. And then we have the discrimination phase where we add uh, distracting odors to see that they can discriminate that target odor among other odors. And then the last step, identification where the dog is supposed to find this target odor wherever it occurs. Yeah. So... Uh, the dog is searching and sniffing and you have this uh, increased intensity. Yes, sure, the dog is sensing something, but that's not what I aim to reward. I want to reward the decision of staying at that one and leaving the other ones. Yes. And that for to be able to do that, it's a thin line between rewarding two quick, uh, just the increased intensity, because you can see that this decreased uh, th- that uh, uh, intensity on all kinds of odors. But I need to tell the dog that that desis- decision that you made now was correct. And that's what I want to reward. So normally when a dog sniffs on something uh, interesting, uh, the tail waves and the, uh, the you know, the, you, you see that intensity. But then in the next step, they completely still. Mm-hmm. And then I can reward that, even if I haven't a fully trained indication. But then I have rewarded the decision-making. Yeah. And that's what I'm aiming for. Because it's especially if... I think we, we will have problems to... Especially when you're an instructor and try to transfer that uh, uh, idea to... to people with very little uh, experience. Uh, we need to be really 
uh, clear on sure. how it looks and, and all that. So that's the reason why we, we, uh, we try to train the indication in a way that makes it very easy for anyone to see that the dog uh, uh, have found what, what he's looking for. Uh, but it's still a delayed uh, reward because you don't reward immediately. You reward the dog for making that decision. So I don't think it is a difference. It's just that we are, uh, uh, you reward a little earlier. You wait for that full risk. Yeah. So like, you know, I have a few takeaways from what you're saying. Uh, so, you know, uh, the example I gave was, um, you know, I want the dog to be in odor while they're in odor mm. that I'm reinforcing. And like you're saying is by doing the game that you did before in that play development, search development, mm. and then commitment to the behavior, the, the final response behavior. So in this case, mm. the sit, the dog clearly understands this is what I do to tell you mm. in this case, at that point, yeah. I have found a Kong. Now, when you pair it, like you said, to the target mm. odor, and then you start removing it, the target odor replaces that. Now, mm. it, and, you know, I've done that before in, in, the, in the training I've done before. And like I said, my personal dilemma was, you know, gosh, I'm still making a toy more valuable than odor. And I could understand why. And I understand oh, okay. what you're saying, you know, what you're saying there. And when I was, yeah. my thought process as I've done this with the stuff I've been doing now is, Odor happens first, and while they're in odor, then I'm reinforcing. Mm. But like you're also saying is a downside that can come from that is the the steps I have to do at times is, you know, build duration. So very similar to like you do with the mm. little, like I would say like the tin, when you have the tin on the ground, you're having mm. it like for tracking article. Mm. I do the yeah. very similar thing, except for the article, it's the odor I'm having them find. And I turn yeah. odor into a target. I just move that little target around. And then mm. the requirement I have is like you're saying is it's that commitment that's staying still mm. there longer. But I also very much like the sit <clears throat> position to happen as well. So it's kind of, it's trying to find that good balance. And like you just said it a second ago, if you... <clears throat> Pour mm. too much water from this cup from the other cup. It's you you, mm. you you run the risk of one of them being too low if you're doing one yeah. thing too much over the other. But I think that the problem here is that we are doing because I understand what you mean. But that is a problem that doesn't happen since we are doing the first part of the training on something else than the target odor. Sure. So if I would start with the target order right after the play development and all that and then when we go from the whole toy and then we go straight to to the target order then um without having an indication i agree that we need to we 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 for sure have to do like you explained mm-hmm. uh, because at that point the dog doesn't have any expectation on Correct. on that odor yeah they don't know what to do so, with it it's just here i know no, it pays exactly. me yeah yeah and then you have to kind of shape that correct uh, in and, and but and that i think is the the confusion here that um uh, that doesn't happen because i do that process on something else first yeah yep so um the first uh, if we uh, i can explain it from the beginning because the 
imprinting on the target odors comes in the last part. So we are now skipping a part here where I think the answers will be. <laughs> sure. Uh, uh, will be. So when we have done the, the play development and the search development, the first thing we do then is to train the indication behavior separately. And that is without any uh, actually use of the nose at all. It's just uh, catching that behavior that I want. And um, uh, we can go into details on different types of, of indications also. And I will just mention a few things about it. But uh, if we take sit and stare as an example, first of all, uh, we train that behavior uh, with the toy, no uh, 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 nose uh, work at all at that point. We just mechanically train the dog to sit and stare at the toy using active-passive play. So we teach the dog what, that when the toy is moving in my hand, you're, you should try to catch it. But when the hand is still, then you should be still, stare at it. Yeah. So the dog learns that staring at the toy means that if he keeps the focus, the toy will soon move and then he will get it. That's the whole idea with that mm -hmm. behavior. Mm -hmm. And then we start uh, normally with a few sessions using food just to be able to do many repetitions without causing too much uh, uh, too high stress levels. Because if the stress levels got too high, especially when the dog is crazy about the toy, what happens is that when you move the, ha the hand with the toy over nose height to, to get that sit, mm -hmm. uh, they sit the first time and the second time they sit also, but the third time they are so focused on the toy that they have trouble to to sit yeah. because then they are just staring at it. I bring so that up doing, in cognition all the time, that yeah, mental so doing, flexibility. Yeah, exactly. So doing that uh, first uh, steps with food is good because then we can do several repetitions. And just to explain it in a very simple way, since mo most of the dogs have done sit before, what happens when you move the hand over their over nose height and you stop it, that looks like what you used uh, the tools you use in, in the ordinary obedience training to make them sit. Uh, so that's normally the first thing they try to sit and then I quickly can remove, uh, reward them for doing that. And then we gradually lower the hand until we come to ground level and they are still sitting. So that's how we, we train the sit response, first of all. Uh, and then we do the same thing with toy. Uh, and then in the next step after that, we uh make them go from using eyes to nose by just hiding the whole toy uh for example between the bricks in a brick wall and then we start the dog to uh, just a few decimeters away from he so he can't see the toy starts the nose and when he finds the toy he has done so many repetitions on on the sit and we place it in high up in the brick wall and then do follow the same steps using um uh, placing the toy lower and lower until uh, the dog continues to sit and re respond exactly like he did in the active-passive exercises. So that's how we do the transfer from yeah. using eyes to using nose and then from that go to smaller amount of sense. It's still the toy. So even when we, we uh, and I can go use an example now with the Kong. So we use the whole Kong, hiding it in the wall and the dog response by sitting and staring at it, waiting for it to move, just like we have done in the first steps. When that works all the way to ground level, level we start to do smaller P 
pieces of this toy. So we cut the Kong and at this point from when we start to, to cut smaller pieces, we start to boil it also. So we boil it and we use tweezers and plastic gloves and all that just to make sure that the dog is searching for Kong and not for touched, uh, for not for human uh, odor. Um, and then we are gradually make the, the pieces smaller and smaller until we come to, um, depending on what the dog is supposed to work with later on, but down to millimeter smaller. And when we come to that point, the dog have developed that uh, fine, the detailed search and connect and still has the, the indication fully uh, uh, trained. And when the dog is able to search, let's say, between five and 10 square meters, searching for one piece of Kong uh, without uh, stopping, and he indicates, then we do the imprinting. And at that point, we can go to a scent wheel, for example. Um, and if I would start with the real target odor immediately without doing any pairing, then I would have to start over with the indication again sure. and reward the reaction mm-hmm. with the delayed uh, uh, reward, like yeah. you, you mm-hmm. said. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, and I could do that, of course, but then it makes no sense of training the indication like I did mm-hmm. before if I, if I can't just transfer that over to the new target order. So this is the reason why we often do pairing because then I already have the indication and I don't end up in a situation where the dog will get confused yeah. and start to turn around and then I have to, to uh, wait for the dog to uh, f- figure out that he, he uh, uh, needs to uh, you know, show some uh, response to that new odor, the difference. So instead I have, uh, let's say that piece of Kong on a, in a very small amount, uh, small piece, together with the, the, the new target order in a controlled setting like sandboxes or sand wheel. And the dog, since it is a piece of Kong, or like I said, this is just an example, you could use anything, but we use Kong as an example now. And the dog finds the piece of Kong, at the same time he will be exposed to this new target order, but without really thinking of it. But he indicates on the Kong. Uh, so I have the full indication already from start. The next step, I remove the Kong, but I still have contamination. So now I have much less scent from that Kong, and now he starts to to take notice to that new odor. And that's how I transfer that indication without getting that confusion where the dog starts to you know turn around or, mm-hmm. or ask me for help or anything. So. Um, um, and, and, and then we, from that point, we start to add discriminating scents. I'll ask the question that probably most are wondering about at this point. Mm. So how hard is it to then proof the Kong once you've, you know, mm. got your odors taught and now you want to show the dog is going to ignore the Kong. Now I'm looking at something yeah from the cognitive side when it comes to memory and Mm -hmm. depending on the dog in front of me, if the dog in front of me is very strong memory oriented, these dogs, Mm -hmm. especially the first thing and added to this, there's going to be a pretty strong reinforcement history going on with that Kong Mm -hmm. odor. Um, Talk about like, what are, what do you have to deal with if you're going to, um, you know, 
again, show that the dog is now no longer caring about if the Kong is present or Kong mm. odor is present. This isn't relevant yep. to the dog anymore. How difficult is that based on those conditions? A strong memory dog and a yeah, high reinforcement I would, uh, history. Yeah, uh, that's a good question because that uh, uh, the answer to that is if I know that I will stop using Kong, then I wouldn't start with using it. Okay. And then I would go straight to the target orders, which we have done, uh, or which we do very often, uh, because it depends on where the dog is supposed to work. So either you can use the call just like uh, another target order, and then you, you, you continue to train on that. So you yeah. never, uh, you never get stop rid of training it. at it. Yeah. No, exactly. You do the, the, the daily training on it, and you use the real target order as often as possible. Uh, but if you know that you are going to uh, get rid of the Kong, I wouldn't even start. Yeah. Because just like you said, the whole idea with using something else than the real target order is that it gives you more training opportunities. That's the whole idea with using it. It's not that it is easier to train the indication or anything. It's just that if you train a lot, you need to have access to the material to train on. And if it is a problem to have access to explosives or drugs in, you know, big variation and to train as much as I do every day, several sessions, then I need something else to train on. Otherwise, the dog will get too little experience of searching. So it's uh, if I know that, yeah, it will probably be difficult to train to to have access to that amount, uh, to that uh, real uh, target order. And this is the reason why people are using pseudo and, uh, you know, Uh-huh. All other things also. So it's nothing, it, it would be like, you know, um, it's no difference. Yeah, it's just it's another exactly odor. So, yeah, so if I know that uh, I'm training on Kong now, but I won't do that. How would you go about if, so let's just say, because again, obviously the fear uh, that would mm. happen here in the United States, especially drug dog handlers. Yeah. Describe the step that you would do. So you go, okay, we're not going to use the Kong because, you know, we don't want the dog to show it, yeah. it alert. What I mean, would you I mean do? that's not the problem. We do it all the time. Yeah. Uh, and that is, um, uh, then I would start with the real target order, but I would still start with the indication okay. before I, I start to, um, I would follow the same steps. I would uh, do play development and search development, uh, But then I would, uh, uh, because you still need to to kind of stimulate the dog's uh, uh, motivation for searching, and you know, uh, and do all the, the preparations. So uh, as long as he's allowed to grab it, uh, mm-hmm. then I would do that. I mean, the the toy, so like whatever a scented toy towel or something like that, or yeah, something that's whatever. saturated yeah, with the exactly. odor. Okay, it doesn't matter at all. It's just a way to tell the dog that your reinforcer is out there somewhere okay. that gives the dog the reason to search for it. it makes no sense why the dog would be interesting in searching for explosives or, or drugs yeah, i mean no, from, for sure. from start if we don't do the connection so he's searching for whatever toy it is and then in the next step when i can see that the dog has this high motivation for searching then i would train the indication and then i would use probably uh, the same um, uh, technique like uh, uh, depending on the dog but i would use food And I would mm-hmm. just mechanically train the response that I want. If it is a sit and, sta- uh, and stare, I would use that, uh, train that separately. Uh, and then I would go to the first step of the search development where I could, the first step of the search on the real target order. And if I have done enough repetitions of that response, 
mechanically without adding it to the search, it would be really easy to, to trigger that in, uh, just transfer it over to the real target order. Uh, it's a little bit difficult to explain, but let's say that I'm using my hand first in the first exercises by doing that active passive, and I would do it with the food. And then in the next step, I, I introduce it uh, in that other context, like a brick wall or, or whatever. And then it's all depending on how many times I have done the, those repetitions. And when you have done them, uh, the active passive so many times, it will be the first thing the dog tries to do. And then I could use the leash to prevent him from, you know, scratching or biting or whatever. So that's not a problem. I would still do the same, but I wouldn't use uh, pieces of Kong or whatever. Sure. I would just do it on, on the real target order immediately. Uh, and the reason for this is that if I know that I would search for uh, or that it would be a problem to search for, for pieces of Kong uh, or tennis ball or, or whatever, then I wouldn't start with it. Because just like you said, uh, I think that there is a confusion sometimes that um, how many odors can a dog you know, remember? Mm -hmm. Well, just ask yourself, how many odors do you remember? It's not that we are going around thinking about them, but when we sense them, we remember them. So imprinting is not that, it's not by, you know, it's not remembering sense, it's creating uh, associations on, on yeah. some sense. And when you have created a positive uh, uh, association with a specific target odor, whether it is cocaine or pieces of Kong, you just have to count on the fact that they will remember it the next time they, uh, uh, they uh, uh, find it. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, if you stop rewarding that, after a while it will you know, go in extinct. But then I see no use of starting with it. Yes. Because then you could never be sure that they will stop responding to it, especially if they're searching for a long time, uh -huh. they don't find the real target odor, and then an old, uh, you yep. know, a, a, an odor that has been rewarded before shows up. Uh -huh. Well, then for sure, there is a big risk that they will indicate on that. And if that is a problem in your job, well, I really recommend don't even start with it. But that goes with everything. Yeah. I mean, uh, if it is uh, whatever you're using, but that's never been a problem uh, because for me, it is just, I mean, uh, I get that question all the time about, yeah, but what do you do when you get, when you stop training on Kong <laughs> and, uh, and I would never use it if, yeah. I, if I did that, then I start with it, but I would still train the indication for it because it is when you start to connect the search with the indication that most problem with handler influence happens i totally agree and i mean if you are doing uh, obedience training or uh, everyone's aware of the fact that you need to train everything separately and this is something that i'm still surprised that that sound like something new <laughs> in detection or tracking for example yeah uh, every sports dog trainer would do that i think <laughs> because it's so yeah, I mean, obviously that you have to identify the different parts of this behavior chain and train them separately. Mm -hmm. But in detection training, especially in professional detection training, it's still a lot of traditions where you're actually doing all the things at the same time. I know. 
It's like it's 10 steps in one. Quite often. Yeah. And especially since it's been so much discussions and I thought that people were aware of the fact that handler influence is a big, big problem in detection mm-hmm. training. Mm-hmm. But there are ways to solve that. And the way to solve that is not to put the dog in a shaping situation every time because dogs in trying to figure out what we want if we have too many different criteria at the same time, they will start to ask for help. Absolutely. No. So yep. avoiding that, uh, the easiest way to avoid that would be to, to tell the dog or train the dog that this is the behavior I want you to do when you find something. Mm-hmm. And then we train that separately. And that has nothing to do with whether it, it, I use Kong first Correct. or if I train the real target dog. Yeah. We would still do the same. Yeah. I mean, no one would let the dog out searching for mines without ha- having a fully trained indication first. No. And- you don't want the dog to try to see what happens. <laughs> exactly. I, don't rec- I don't think actually any of the things that we are... Uh, searching for whether it is explosives or drugs we don't want the dog to 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 try and figure out you know a way to tell us that here we have found i've found something because the natural thing for a dog to do in that situation is to use their teeth or Mm -hmm. paws yes and this is the whole reason uh, why we train it separately and also because it's always a better solution to identify the different parts of it and otherwise it will also put us in some kind of guessing game where we um, try to interpret the dog's behavior uh, and just because he's sniffing doesn't even mean that he's aware of of that yeah so we we need to to train and reward things that that are uh, i mean obvious for the dog also and uh, this leads me a little bit into uh, a thing we were talking about uh, before and that is uh, the reward placement and the reward techniques yes and um, uh, so uh, uh, um, let's say that you have uh, before that I will just say a few things about different types of indications we have you know different types of passive indications and uh, it can be sit and stare, and sometimes, depending on the job the dog is going to do or the organization or agency, they have this you know, protocol uh, saying that we, we want this type of indication. Then it's no, no um, you know, discussion. Then you, you have to have that. But um, then um, uh, there are you know, several different indications. You can have a stand and stare, you can have a lie down and stare, sit and stare, or, or let the dog decide whether you should sit or lie down or, or mm-hmm. stand. Uh, so first of all, that needs to be uh, decided, decided on, um, depending on what the dog is, is, will be working with. Uh, I think that's the, the most, uh, I mean, if you need a really, really accurate indication where the dog gets really close, I mean, digital devices or mm-hmm. whatever, uh, compared to um, explosives or whatever, that, that, that has to decide what type of indication you should have. A good thing with a sit and stare is that you get that uh, distance between the, the nose and the hide mm-hmm. automatically because the dog sits. Um, and another good thing with sit and stare is that they get it's a little bit easier to make the dog understand that they should be still. 
many dogs when they are standing after a while they start to almost tap uh, move their feet yep so stand and stare for some dogs can be quite an active behavior and the other thing is that when they are standing and pointing it's a risk that they get i mean exposed very close to to the hide so uh, that that can be a uh, one problem i also seen in some many spaniels for example that they have this natural tendency to freeze uh, and just because they have that natural tendency to to freeze it it is uh, uh, sometimes uh, a behavior that the handler choose to reinforce because it's so natural for them i normally do the opposite so if it's so natural for the dog to do that then there might be several other reasons for the dog to do that also so that's why i like to add a sit or lie down or whatever yeah. so that i can get that decision making also that would make because we we can see some dogs that especially many of the spaniels they have uh, as soon as they get a little bit insecure they have this you know freeze tendency (laughs) and then it's really easy to accidentally reward that oh for sure because uh yeah and then that's one (laughs) way to training a, a very solid false alert so uh just the fact that they had to do something more can make it more uh, reliable because then they have to make that decision instead of just trying. Because if they are just standing uh, a little bit, it doesn't cost very much for them to try that. Correct. So uh, they can, and I've seen that the stress level rises and then it's so, you know, in their genes to do that. So I prefer just, and, and that's funny because it's, uh, uh, years ago, I was told that you yeah, use something that is natural for the dog to do and that build on, on that. And now I do the opposite just because it's so natural. I think that the indication has to be decided by several things. First of all, what the dog is supposed to search for. Is it suitable for that? Is it good for a type of indication for that? And also, is it easy for me to, to, to see or to, to read. I don't think we should be have to be dog experts to see if a dog indicates. Correct. No, that e- will put us in, yeah, and that will put us in situations where we think that we can rely on, on our skills of reading dogs. But yeah. uh, I'm sorry to say that we are not that good. We're at not it, that good. Uh, even it, though we think. And you brought up an excellent point. It was one I went through too which was, mm. oh, do what is natural to the dog because the dog is less yeah. likely to, lack of better terms, lie to you, even though we know they're not lying to us. They're just trying to figure out how to get reinforcement. But Yeah, yeah, exactly. And all of this conversation that we have about some of these problems that come up, just like we mm. keep saying, comes from miscommunication from the handler in the process yeah. or handler yeah. involvement too much in the process. And we've taught the dogs to use us for information. And I get on that all the time in my cognition classes with the Mm. dogs that are high in inference, dogs that problem solve really well. Well, those dogs are going to use a lot of different things to solve the problem. Many cases, it's you if you are constantly giving them information. So Yeah, exactly. And that's, um, yeah, definitely. And, and, And also that I think that especially experienced handlers, I mean, we think that we we know that we we think that we we will be able to see 
if the dog has found something, even if we doesn't, if we don't have a, a you know, form, uh, fully trained indication. But the problem is that we only have, we have seen many dogs, sure, but um, refer to the dogs that we have seen before. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that this dog that I have in front of me now yep. reacts in the same way. So just by, uh, and the, the biggest problem is that we see what we want to see. <laughs> so and, uh, and, and then just to solve that problem, if I have one type of indication, well, either the dog indicates or it's not indicating. Yeah, I don't need to, to guess. And what happens when we guess is that if we ha- don't have a full indication, we just see a tendency to this increased interest we might move towards the dog or ask the dog, does he found something? Did he found something or whatever? Mm-hmm. And all of these things are just confirming uh, for the dog and they are rewarding. Yeah. So just by moving toward the dog, we, are, we, we can easily uh, trigger a false alert. But with that said, you brought up what you just brought up um, is probably why many in the sport world struggle so much is because They've been told having an indication is not needed or could be bad or whatever it is. And just like you said, so then they're trying to read these small little nuanced behaviors in their dog. And Mm. those little nuanced behaviors are very similar to other things like you said earlier, interest, this, that, and the other. So with no super clear indication behavior, Mm. these handlers are always kind of guessing and maybe many Mm. times they can guess correctly, but they're still, let's just say if 70% of the time they guess right, they're still 30% of the time they're guessing wrong. And that's significant. And just by, like I said, moving toward the dog, sometimes even just looking at the dog will be reinforcing. Oh yeah. For the dog. So easy as an instructor to say that, well, you have to read your dog. No one would argue about that. Yeah. But that doesn't give you any information. Because if you tell someone you have to read your dog, uh, then you should be able to tell exactly how those behaviors look like. And no one can do that. We might be able to do that with our own dogs because we have seen it so many times. But that's one of the big things with dogs is the variety of behaviors. Uh, that they constantly learn through operant conditioning in the interaction with humans to act and behave in very specific ways. This is the reason why some, or all I would say, handlers or dog owners get the same type of dogs all the time because they are constantly uh, producing behaviors out of that specific interaction between that dog and that handler. And we have to take that into consideration before we say that all dogs will act the same way yeah. when they, when they, uh, uh, that, that, and I think that the easiest way to solve that is to just have a, a trained indication. If and that can be a problem, if you haven't done what we talked about last episode about the search development, because then you can get a bad balance. You can have a dog who has more, who has more motivation for indicating than for searching. So, <clears throat> I mean, that, that's the balance you have to find. And this is the reason why we do all this search development for a long time, so we can clearly see that the dog has enough motivation for searching. And then we can start to train the indication separately. Yeah. Because it definitely can be a problem if you train the indication too early, uh, if the dog hasn't had time to develop the motivation for searching. Then it can be a problem, for sure. Yeah. 
so you can have a sitness there and that you know that's good that's a uh, 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 reason that it's easier to make a dog understand that he should be still uh, when he's sitting there mm-hmm. uh, but if you are too focused on the sit and forget about the accuracy then a sit can be too relaxed so the dog sits and and, and the accuracy uh, is too to uh, and it's not too uh, enough accurate you don't have enough accuracy with, and with, with that i mean pointing with both eyes and nose towards the hide so when i train a sit and stare i want to have a dog who is almost leaning towards the hide so he doesn't sitting he, he doesn't sit you know too relaxed because then then um, uh, the, you will have a sit but no accuracy so you have to find that balance uh, and the the to have a good distance between the nose and the hide um so that can be a problem sometimes with the sitters there if you uh, have you know uh, for example too little drive for the food or kong or whatever uh, and that intensity and that focus comes from high anticipation on, on the reward yeah a stand and stare um it's easy to to just form straight on a brick wall for example uh you don't need to do the active passive games to train a stand and stare in my opinion the first part the first steps of a stand and stare is very easy to train but it's much more difficult to train a very solid stand and stare which means that when the dog is standing and he freezes, uh, but what happens when, uh, when you wait a little longer? And that's when pushing sometimes happens or you know, starting to move with the, the paws. Uh, so the first tendency of a standard stare is very easy to train just by you know, sh- shaping it on, on the wall. Uh, but... Um, um, what I've seen is that, well, <clears throat> the dog is so exposed close to the target that some dogs, they train almost like a nose target, pushing their nose against yeah. the hide. In my opinion, that is not a passive indication. That is a very active indication. And then you need to ask yourself, what would happen if the hide wasn't placed? If it was reached, what would happen then? Uh, what I've also seen is that uh, when you train a sit, uh, stand and stare, you need to be able to f- to capture that little head movement backwards to get the uh, a solid stand there, so the dog gets aware of not pushing but pulling the head a little bit backwards and then stand still. Uh, that. Uh, uh, is uh, important, I think, for for having uh, standards there because otherwise, they, it's a big risk that they get tempted to lick or or bite or whatever. Yeah. And the other thing I've seen also is that dogs who stand and stare are it's like a half trained indication, so they are in an active mode uh, a little bit when they are standing. It's like they are prepared. Um, so especially if we reward. Here comes the the thing with the markers and release signal. I was just gonna say that if yeah, if I combine it with rewarding behind the dog with a release, uh, what I very often see is that 
they get this tongue flicking because they are in a conflict of staying and at the same time has high expectations of turning around and run to the reward. And then you get that tongue flicking, uh, which means that they are licking with the tip of their tongue Mm -hmm. in and out which is a very typical behavior when they are, you know, have, the, have this high anticipation in two directions. And this is one of the reasons why I very rarely use um, uh, uh, a reward signal, or at least a release, for most of the dogs that I train because they are searching for things that I really don't want them to, to touch uh, or lick on. So even if I have, and that's one of the reasons why I sit and stare sometimes, it's good that even if they are, would have this tongue flicking, they are not exposed that close to, to the hide. And that can be a bigger problem if it's a stand and stare or lying down because then they are so close to the hide. So if they start to lick at that point, then it's a problem. So the licking very often is explained like, well, they do that because they want more information about the scent. But that makes no sense because the dog have already indicated. So he should have been doing that and analyzing already. So in those situations, the licking very often is connected to to, uh, anticipation of the reward and especially anticipation of two things at the same time. Uh, So when I have licking in dogs, uh, especially dogs that I have, um, got as they, you know, as as they are old, older and pre-trained already, the normal solution to licking is to change the reward placement, and uh, and that is to use a direct reward, and that's the very very easy way to get rid of licking by uh, changing the anticipation of of where the reward will be delivered. So what we have to remember is that uh, using a release signal. Uh, is really powerful and this is the reason why we are using it i use it a lot uh, but that's that's also one of the reasons that why i rarely use it in in detection or tracking uh, because first of all it almost triples the effect of the reward not only it it will be the you know the signal itself right uh, is kind of rewarding raises the the intensity level and then the expectation of the reward itself the ball or whatever we're using but also running Mm -hmm. so uh you get a really strong effect of it so first we have to ask ourselves okay this dog will this be a good indication how how long will how will that affect the search so sometimes we have dogs where the handler says that yeah my problem is that he's running too much in the search and then I ask them, okay, how do you reward them? They said they use the release signal every time. So they are actually rewarding the dog with running uh, also. That is something that I think many handlers need to consider before they just use the release signal without, just by, you know, uh, without thinking really. Uh, so that's one thing to think of. The other thing is that the reason why I use a marker when I use it is that I can be very accurate. That's the, one of the ideas with, with the marker, that you can be very precise. Mm-hmm. And since I do most of the steps in the beginning of the training, I want the reward to come from behind. So I'm positioning myself straight behind the dog in the first step, like when I search for, on the brick wall, for example. And that makes it 
difficult for me to use a marker because I only see the, I don't see exactly what the dog is doing. So I can be accidentally rewarding something like a small movement towards the hide, for example. Um, and that's, um, can, that can be a, a problem that I, I actually don't know what I reward exactly. And the third thing is that when we are using these reward signals, we use it in normally in a shaping like training. We want them to be active, thinking about what they are doing and try to get us to, to, uh, to click or, or whistle or whatever we use it. And I want dogs to be like that normally. I want them to be very, uh, you know, uh, try and figure out what to do. But that, at the same time, there are some situations where I want the opposite. I don't want them to try anything at all. No, I don't want any variation. And indication is one of those uh, situations where I don't want any variation at all. I don't want the dog to be in a shaping mode. He's indicating. Mm-hmm. I just want them to respond to that signal with that behavior and nothing more. And with some dogs that I've trained very, you know, actively with, with the re- release signal or um, uh, other types of reward signals, I do it in bite work and obedience and everything. I can clearly see that after the first reward in the detection training with that, they get into a little bit more of the shaping mode. And then you can see that they start to um, be more active in the indication. And I normally don't want that. So that's one of the reasons why I, I avoid it. Yeah. So you, you brought up a few questions here. So it's funny because I've definitely seen what I would call like licking, nose pecking, mm. um, these things. But it comes from a lot of those who use the remote reward devices. So the ball poppers in mm. the box and the dogs. Yeah have of course excessive salivation they're nose pecking Mm. they're trying to in some cases catch the ball as it's coming out immediately Mm. and that's uh, one of the problems i see with the using something like that versus like what you're doing Mm. which you you'll come over uh, you know Mm. you know you you pay you're the one always paying you're not using a device to pay so that's i think how you've also like you talked about you've you've avoided uh, a significant issue that you brought up the activity from the dog you know, how it came in a, into mm. play with dogs that were used with uh, a marker-based system, but also with the dogs mm. that are used a re- remote reward-based system also have this problem because of the anticipation, the high anticipation mm. of that ball being popped out of whatever it is. Yeah, Now, exactly. the, the other part I was going to say is, um, you know, like you mentioned, you know, you're kind of you you typically reward the dog by tossing the toy over its head, but I've also got to see you build in mm. cues on purpose. So, cause otherwise people, the cue comes into play mm. when you start walking behind the dog, the dogs typically know, mm. okay, I know what's going to happen yeah. next. And then the spin around starts happening because they want to catch you throwing it in. But what you've done is yeah. you've built good duration. You also mm. have one where you pet the dog and that petting kind of like soothes mm. them a little bit. And then while you're petting, you'll yeah, deliver. It's a bridge. Uh, yep. and, and I uh, would, but what I also think is important and that is something that, uh, I think is discussed too little, and that is the reward placement. Uh, because uh, I, I often he- heard that hear that uh, yeah, they explain it like they are throwing, but that doesn't give 
me the information about the reward placement really because I follow a very strict um, plan for for how I change the reward placement with throwing so uh, in the first step I reward I, I the, the principle behind it is that uh, I can just explain that I want the dogs to be completely sure that the reward would be delivered in front of them all the time so after a while they stop you know in, in theory it would be good to reward to change the reward placement you know sometimes behind sometimes in front sometimes you know there because that would kind of keep them still yeah. but in practice it doesn't really work like that uh, so uh, because we we will still uh, uh, reward you know uh, the dog will sit and after a while he would lose focus on the hide and sit and point with the nose but some but the eyes were you know be looking <laughs> somewhere else yeah. thinking about where yes. the reward placement would be so i want the dog to know completely sure that the reward will be delivered in front of me that makes them focus on that uh, uh, and don't you know and also actually relax a little bit because they don't need to think about if they sometimes had to run to me to get the reward and and i don't create too much expectation behind them Mm -hmm. uh, so I reward in front and then I used to have to get the question yeah but you cannot throw the reward on an explosive device which is a funny question <laughs> to ask because we do a lot of things in training that we don't do in operations with our dogs it would be like saying yeah but you cannot use a bite suit mm -hmm. in, in training because that will never happen in real life no but this is during the basic training you can reward by throwing as much as you like because when you come to the next step you start to introduce a variable reinforcement schedule and you start to do uh, you actually stop rewarding uh, many times and also i will explain how i change the reward placement in that phase but first of all a very effective way of getting that pullback with the head and to make them close their mouth and stop licking is to throw and throw quite hard because then you will get that anticipation where they pull their head back and they sit still. So first I reward close to the hide by throwing and I rarely throw over their head. I throw from the side. And then from that point to avoid that they are looking you know, up, expecting the toy, because when you throw over their head, the throw will be longer. Mm -hmm. So it takes more time and then they will have time to look up. So I throw from the side and then I gradually lower the reward placement uh, from <coughs> close to the hide. And then the next step is that I reward, let's say that the dog is indicating something in nose height. The next placement of the reward is between the, it's almost in chest height. So it's a bit under the, the mm -hmm. hide. Mm -hmm. And gradually lower and lower because dogs will normally have expectation, you know, up because when they are, but, but you never see a dog sitting waiting for the reward to, you know, to come under them. So that's why we can change the reward placement by lowering it without causing any problems with, with that. So I gradually lower the reward placement until I can reward by just throwing it on the ground in front of the dog, but it's still in front of the dog. So that, in that way, I take away the expectation behind mm -hmm. and I set it up for the next step where, for example, some dogs, when they indicate in operations, the handler is not allowed to go there. Yep. Um, and then um, 
the first uh, step towards that is to uh, make sure that you always have the dog under control when you reward. So when I have now lowered the reward placement until it comes to the ground, the next step is that I should be able to go to the dog, put the leash on, and then I have at that point a ball on a, with a rope or a kong on a rope, and I just flip it from the side uh, to the dog where I still have the rope in my hand mm-hmm. and I have the dog on a leash, flip it from the side, which means that the reward placement is still the same. Mm-hmm. So it's still mm-hmm. in front of the dog, but I have the dog under control. And when I deliver the reward, I take the dog away from, from the hide. And that's mm-hmm. one very important thing because when a dog runs to you and you give the reward, it can easily start to flip away, you know. And that can cause some really, really dangerous situations. True. Yeah, uh, that, that is so a, a big point. Always put the, 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 and then the leash will become a bridge telling the dog that soon the reward will come to you. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't turn around. And for the dogs, for example, who are searching away from the handler uh, and they are rewarding and uh, they are indicating on, a, on distance, Instead uh, of going to them, reward, we train them to turn around and walk in a controlled way, the same way back. So uh, and that's not the same thing as using a release signal, because that release signal, when I use that, I want high uh, speed. Yeah. And I want that anticipation. So that's something that is you know, different from uh, a recall in that situation. So... I throw, 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 and then lower the reward placement until I can reward just, you know, on the ground in front of the dog. And uh, at that point, I have no licking or anything because the dog don't need to think about where the reward will come because it's always in the same place. So, uh, uh, and then put the leash on, deliver the reward, and then gradually we go into that... uh, uh, variable reinforcement schedule where we we uh, uh, you know don't have to think about that anymore actually so uh, uh, that's how I I do the reward placement and I've seen some scary examples of dogs who started to get sensitized by sounds behind them and uh, one dog heard something that sounded like a clicker but wasn't a clicker, mm. but were standing on in an industrial facility, mm-hmm. standing in standing and indicating, and heard something behind that sounded like the reward signal, stepped down with one of the back legs between two uh, things, and it just got broke straight Oof. off. Uh, another dog... Uh, that that was with the release signal, turned around and kicked the hide with the yeah. back legs. Yeah, yeah. So uh, whether we are using um, a reward signal or not, we still have to think about how that dog will work. I mean, in the end. Yeah, I was going to say, and um, where we're the yeah. same at is truly a good dog team should be able to do either or 
and that would depend yeah, on your your situation. You know, having the tools in your with yeah. you and your dog that if you want to go up and reward following, like you said, the mm. protocols that you listed, or the situation yeah. may not be able to do it that way. You have your you know your condition mm. reinforcer that's your signal. You can say terminal bridge to come to you mm. and get reward that way, and mm. it, having those options for you are going to make you a much better dog team because now you can do more things. You're not mm. locked into one or the other and you have yep. the ability based on your search area to dictate what you yeah. may or may not do. Yeah. And also, I mean, you have to find something that is, uh, that is thought through Yes, all the way. And also that you're able to, to do, uh, and I think that sometimes handlers end up with a clicker in their hand just because they yeah. uh, they have never even heard about any options to that. Mm-hmm. But I mean, in my opinion, it doesn't get easier just because you have something. It, it just gives you it can gives be you harder sometimes. Tool. Yeah, yeah, and you have it, it, and and that makes it even more complicated sometimes because your timing doesn't necessarily get better. And your hands occupied or you're too fast. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And then also I see that, um, well, I'm much into the details uh, in this case because I, 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 I have criterias for these things already from start. So for me, it's not enough that dog is, you know, sitting. I want to see what he's doing also with the eyes and, mouth and pointing and all that and then um it's um i mean then you can clearly see that there are uh, differences in the dog's behavior depending on if he's completely sure of where the reward will come or not mm-hmm. and um so what i'm looking for here is that whether you're using that the reward signal or not don't forget about the criterias for things that you can't actually see from behind so you're not accidentally or randomly reward things that makes the dog more and more active because he's not really sure of what what's uh or, or why the the reward is coming mm-hmm. because many dogs they became become really really aware of that shaping situation so they start to think more and more and more and more and that's how you can almost shape some really bizarre indication behaviors yes Uh, and i see it a lot and then you have to ask yourself is this something that will be a problem later on and if if the answer to that is yes well then my suggestion is change the reward placement make it simpler just reward in front and then instead if that is a problem Later on, you can add some rituals for the reward uh, or, or later on. But before having a fully trained indication and then start to do that kind of shaping exercise in indication, it's almost like asking for, for problems. And, um, uh, and I see that a lot. I see, I, mean, I, mean, I, see, I see dogs who also in the tracking when they indicate they are like woodpeckers uh, <laughs> and they have their heads in a strange position and everything. So, I mean, sometimes I want the dogs to be that active, but in my opinion, that's not what I want in an indication. 
Um, I want them to be indicate, be still, and know exactly what will happen afterward. I think that is more predictable, and it makes them more relaxed. True. The predictability um, is huge. Yeah. And, um, and then... Um, it, it's uh, and, and the reason for 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 that is that a lot of the things that will happen, especially when the dog is in front of you with the back against you, you will not actually see. I mean, I see the the combination of having a dog in a, in that active mode uh, that I explained, waiting for running, mm. that makes it him already tense. Yeah. And then if you also accidentally reward the dog for pushing, licking, or whatever, uh, it can be a really strong uh, behavior. Yeah. Just because you're accidentally rewarding that. So if you are using that very accurate uh, signal, which can definitely be a good you know, thing, but have a mirror or something that makes it possible for you to actually see what the dog is doing. Sure. No, it's 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 uh, excellent points. I get several film clips from people asking about what should I do about my dog? Uh, he's licking on the on the scent box. Yeah, and then they send me film clips, and and then uh, yeah, the dog is <laughs> licking more and more and more and more, and then they are rewarding behind. Yes, so they are rewarding it every time, uh, and I don't think sometimes that the handlers really see the connection between that very strong reward schedule that it, mm-hmm. it, it becomes and, uh, and the fact that they are also rewarding the dog with running. So you create very, very active state of mind. So some dogs are exhausted after two rewards. Yeah. So what I think is important is that when I throw, I do that first to get that snappy indication and that intense focus but then since i i changed the way that i reward by being if, if i look at the dog and i can see that now it's getting a little bit uh tendency to to panting and things like that then i need to change the reward by sometimes just give it instead instead of throwing mm, but mm-hmm. if i only have one option and that option is always to reward behind then you will have running as part of that reward. And that can be a problem when you're searching a longer so time true. with a dog. Searching, expecting that reward, and that reward is always running. And it's not always about uh, uh, you know, re- the reward signal. I see also people who, when they reward the dog uh, with a ball or whatever, and then they have... Uh, a reward ritual where they are just standing there and throwing the, the yes. ball as long as possible for, you know, and then the same handler can ask afterward, I have a little problem. My dog is running a little bit too much or too hectic in the search. Yeah, but you just spent two minutes throwing. Yeah. It's, uh, or you've hit so the dog the, in the back the, of the head with a toy too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And then they are tired already by getting the reward. Yes. So I have criteria for uh, closed mouth and all that. And that is something that I constantly during the search and training need to see. Okay, now I see the tendency and I need to slow down the reward. Now I go instead of uh, uh, 
throwing or dropping, I might just give the dog the reward and then doesn't even allow him to walk with the reward, but just take him straight into me and just stand there and let him have the reward for a while. And sometimes it can be the opposite that I see that I, now I need some more intensity than I throw again or drop. So sure. the, the intensity in the reward deliverance is extremely important. Absolutely. But now I think it's only focusing on using the reward signal or not. But it's more nuances yeah. than that. It's a, it, so don't lock yourself up, up to one type of reward. I was just going to say. It is a little bit difficult if you have charged your release signal. You want that bam, you know, mm-hmm. quick response to it. But uh, if that is the only way that you can reward during the search, then very often that will create a lower quality in the search. It's, it's true. I mean, I can give it from my, you, you, you're, this has been a great conversation because it's helping me to constantly evolve as a trainer. And I've had a lot Mm. of these feelings and experiences, a lot of things that you described I've gone through. Um, I've Mm. gone through, I've used, you know, methods very similar to how you described, but there's been some significant differences that you're bringing up that I'll be Mm. making my own adjustments on. uh, Because at the end of the day, back to what I just said a few minutes ago was to me, the best to be a good detection dog handler and trainer, mm. we need multiple tools in that toolbox to do whatever yeah. works best in that situation. And when we get so focused on you have to do this or you, you have to be direct yeah. reward or you have to be indirect reward. Mm. Why can't you use both? There's, there could be situations yeah. where one is a better option than the other, but not having it mm. means you're limited, you know? And if yeah. you're always doing something or always not doing something, that becomes problems because of the, what the dogs can learn. Yeah, and, and in the end, uh, the dog's you know task in the in the end will have to decide what will be the most suitable mm-hmm. um, indication and reward system and all that. And um, and, and but I, I think I get the question often that people say that yeah but you have a really nice indication in your dog but why don't you use a clicker mm-hmm. uh, and that's a funny funny question because obviously there are different ways of <laughs> getting to the same result oh so, yeah so uh, it's been uh, um, you know it, it's possible to train it and I'm, I'm gonna use both of them but uh, I think that many trainers will benefit from keeping it simple in the beginning yes. and, um, and don't just get stuck with one tool, creating one type of anticipation in the dog. And especially if that anticipation is connected to very high uh, level of arousal. Yeah. Uh, because I know that that will cause uh, some really hectic dogs now and then and then um and the reason why i'm careful with using it is not that i don't think that a release signal reward signal are effective (laughs) it's the opposite it's because they are so effective that we need to be careful with using them 100 percent. and you have to look at that dog's learning history you know what that dog has i mean if you are using your one specific type of reward signal a lot in 
obedience, for example. Yeah. Well, then you have to take that into consideration, knowing that, okay, when I use this, my dog will maybe uh, start to think a little bit about doing something together with me, social uh, you know, anticipation. And then you have to ask yourself, is that, uh, will that be a problem if I use it in something else? So uh, I've had dogs that I only use reward signal in detection and, and never in other training. So, I mean, all, all things are possible. You just have to think it through and don't just start to use uh, something because you think that it's the only option. Yeah, because if you are not, uh, let's say that even if you ob- objectively could say that this method is, um, you know, objectively the best method to use, doesn't mean that it's the best method for everyone. Correct. Because if you're not comfortable with that tool, then it will not be a good tool for you. Mm-hmm. And um, and I think that um, uh, that's the most important thing. And what I explained was, I mean, I've seen and I've trained dogs who are trained in different ways with reward signals and without reward signals. Uh, so obviously it works in different ways. What I just point out are the things that I very often see as a problem mm-hmm. and, uh, and uh, explain how I normally solve them. And, um, and then it's... Um, when you start to pinpoint these details, um, it's not always easier to um, to use these very sharp tools. Sometimes it's easier to just, okay, I'm not good enough on using this clicker or whistle or whatever. So then you can at least solve it by just change the reward placement by throwing in the same place uh, uh, for a while sure and then you will see that a lot of that licking will go away for example and then you can start to use the reward signal again but then think it through a little bit more exactly but um i don't have much problem with you know i, I sometimes hear uh, one argument for not for, for not using a reward signal or release signal is that you reward away from the height i think that's the smallest pr- problem in this case that's not <laughs> i the hear problem. that one all the, the problem time. is that it is yeah that it is very powerful and you create for some dogs they are already very they love to run uh-huh. so uh, i don't want them to expect that every time correct so i prefer to have a dog who when he indicates, okay, I'm sitting here. Yep. And the only thing that will happen is either the toy will be thrown to me or he will come, put the leash on, I will get the reward or I will get the recall. Yep. Uh, yep. yep. So, um, yeah. And that's one way of, of solving it. And, uh, and I, you know, that is um, uh, how I normally do it. And then I apply different techniques depending i mean later on in the training if that dog is going to do i don't know remote detection or mm-hmm. whatever mm-hmm. Uh, but what, what we are talking about now are the foundations where i establish a solid and reliable indication into the search yep. and during that phase i keep it simple yeah no. and then uh, because as soon as the dog has this solid foundation then i can easily change way afterward but it's like always if the foundations aren't you know solid 
uh, we have to wait a little bit before we, <laughs> we add too many other steps. Yeah, for sure. So I have, I have two questions left. And mm-hmm. uh, one is, you know, I know a lot of uh, when you're doing odor, you do low level odors or smaller, throw lower threshold odors. And I'm, mm-hmm. And I'm on the same page of when we use that, that it helps create a stronger, more detailed, let's say, sniffing behavior mm. because they're not running around a room being a wild chicken and then waiting for odor to hit mm. them in the face because there's so much odor there. Um, yep. it, it, so I, that's something I think uh, you could speak on a little bit. And then the second part yep. of the question would be, how important is obedience and when do you use obedience? Because I've seen your, your dogs through, especially on video, you have very mm. well-controlled dogs and a lot mm. of people hear obedience is bad for detection. <laughs> so I'll let you do yeah. talk about odor thresholds, why you use them the way you do, yeah. and then when to do obedience and why you do obedience. Yeah, the odor thresholds are, are first of all, also dependent on, depending on what the dog is supposed to, to work with. We can clearly see that some dogs are, are really good at a uh, small amount of, of odors, detecting them without, you know, um, spending too much energy some dogs gets exhausted by that and you can clearly see that they struggle and that that has helps us to to uh, decide you know, what to use the dog for uh, but then we start to develop the detailed search just to get that information also to see that this dog can search for low amount small amount of, so- of odors uh, and use this detailed search without without getting exhausted, and that gives us information that is useful. So this is the reason why we start there. We go uh, start from small amounts, and then we go gradually up to to the level where you know you have to set some kind of limitations. We want this dog to find and indicate on everything from this small to this big. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that has to decide what. But also when we start with the imprinting, we start with the target odor that smells the least. Uh, because if we start with something that smells a lot, it's a risk that because dogs rationalize and they might think that, okay, this is easy. And then we establish a type of search that will work for uh, you know, cannabis or, or things like that. But when they're searching for cocaine or heroin or whatever, they have developed a, a searching technique that will not be very effective so we will establish a search technique that is based on a detailed search when it comes to the sniffing frequency Uh, and the sniffing frequency doesn't necessarily make them more sensitive but it makes it more likely for them to react on on over because if you have the combination of speed uh, and low sniffing frequency they can take several steps before they sniff again and then they can easily miss out, uh, pass a hide. And then you have to go back again. And then you will waste a lot of time searching the same area just because of, uh, just because the dog has uh, that combination of low sniffing frequency and high speed. So that's why we established the detailed search first. So even when the dog is searching without leash, even running around, at least they have a little bit higher sniffing frequency than the dog who's just running around searching for, you know, large amount of, of odors. So that's the basic principle behind it. But then the, the, the thresholds has to be decided, you know, depending on, I know that this dog will work with everything from, you know, micro uh, amounts up to 
you know, hundreds mm-hmm. of kilo, and then you have to train everything. So we don't train more on low, uh, on small amount of cells. We just start with it. Yeah, that's the, that's the reason. Because even large amount of cells can be so well hidden that the dog still needs to have this detailed search to, yeah. to find it and deep hides and all that. So, so but if we make it, if we start on too big uh, amounts. It's very easy that the dog thinks that yeah, it, it will always work if I just sniff now and then. And in the end, I mean, if you establish, this, we can establish uh, or avoid that problem in two ways. We can, first of all, then just uh, create or build foundations built on that effective search with closed mouth and small amount of sense and high sniffing frequency. But that has also be to, to be combined with uh some kind of systematic search so that we can say that the dog have been everywhere yeah. in this uh room or whatever it is so that's a combination of that instead of just letting the dog into a room searching with this scanning technique and then we can very often see uh handlers when the dog is you know have run around there for a while that the handler had no clue where the dog has been so they uh-huh. put the leash on and then they search everything again yeah. and then you're actually doing you know double the work, work yeah. uh, all the time instead of having that um, uh, more detailed search already from start because then I can just pick out some segments instead and search again. So the question used to be, but how long do they uh, can they last using that sniffing technique? First of all, one very important part of detection training is to combine physical training with detection. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, it is not a problem for a dog to search with that detailed search for a long time, uh, even a whole day if you take, let's say, search for 15, 20 minutes and then take a five-minute break and then continue again. A well-trained dog will for sure be able to do that. A dog who's just running around will get warm and you will get the lower uh, quality of the search. So in the end, I think that a detailed search or at least a high effective sniffing frequency will be the best. But you have to combine it with physical training. And we do that in a way that, first of all, teach the dog that sometimes we just start the search when you're already tired and haven't even got any water. So we teach the dog to use an effective technique, even though they are physically tired already. Mm-hmm. So we don't always train the dogs when they are, you know, well, uh, when they are just been rested and, and all that. So we have to vary that. And we do that constantly. And I do intervals, for example, doing running on the treadmill and then go straight to a search and then back again. And yeah, prepare them for how it actually will be. Yeah. In, well, in, in one of the, uh, real life. One of the things you brought up too is a lot of these issues that some handlers have with proper search of the dog is self-inflicted. Mm. You know, for example, yeah. is they'll bounce the ball into the room and then the handler runs around or a trainer runs around, acts like they're hiding it all over the place. And then yeah. all of yeah. a sudden we tell the dog to go. Well, now the dog's just spun up and it's yeah, exactly. at a high level of, of, you know, uh, franticness and, and motivation that it's, yeah. it, it can't help itself. So then it's not even a, a, a tool yeah. that's functioning at its best level. It's functioning at a level that's mm. over threshold, way too excited. And then it takes yeah. a little while to settle itself down. And mm. if it doesn't, and then the, the worst thing is then we make the find so easy 
that they get reinforced for this crazy, you know, uh, yeah. you yeah. know, drive state. And yeah. that ends up becoming more and more of a problem as they keep going on versus teaching the dog. Yeah. Hey, searching is a controlled thing, you know, start yeah. off calmly. And also that if they have been taught from start that it's possible to find it that way, yeah, then we, they might think that it's always that easy. Yes. And we, I, I, that's the reason why we start, for example, the tracking training also on hard surface. Because if I start in the woods or on grass or whatever, it, it's too easy. Sure. So I can teach the dog that it's possible to, to have this high speed and to have the nose uh, high up or whatever. So instead, we start on a quite difficult level to teach the dog that you need to, to be focused from start because this is not easy. And that's the reason why we start with with the the sense that smells the least, also. Yeah. Um. So yeah. So that's the principle behind it. And also, I mean, again, dogs like to run, oh, <laughs> and yeah. if they think that they can run around and especially and herding use, uh, breeds, sporting breeds, you know, yeah. all those that are all designed this to go goes run around. Together with, yeah, this goes together also with the things that we spoke about the first uh part where we talked about this performance based uh you know that they we need to have criterias for for you know focus concentration and intensity and all that instead of just looking at the dog running around uh so having criterias for that focus and concentration is a good principle to have already from puppy training and that is helpful for also when we come to this part of the training that they know that we don't just run around we just have to we have to focus before and then you know do things in a in a certain order yeah well one of the things is small amounts of sense i'll let you talk about the obedience and then we i know it's late your time so i don't want to keep you up longer than i already (laughs) have yeah but but, the obedience yeah yeah. it's um uh something that we uh you have to have that it's also uh uh, first of all, it doesn't have anything to do with the dog's ability to do detection or tracking or anything. Uh, but it can be really a problem if you're not, let's say that you're setting up a, a detection training session and your dogs are not uh, able to sit and wait. Then you will create a conflict and you have to tell the dog to, you know, to stay and, and all that. So I think it's necessary to have uh, basic obedience uh, when we do these kind of things just to use to not waste the energy on the wrong things so uh, this is also told in, in hunting dogs that no obedience uh, that will only you know uh, decrease the motivation for hunting i think that the only ones who say that are the ones who doesn't train obedience or who doesn't know how to do it sure. because no one wants uh, everyone wants a dog who who who's obedient i mean mm-hmm. that it helps a lot mm-hmm. and it has nothing to do with with uh, that the the thing is that you have to choose when you train it so i mean if you if your goal now is to to do search development and you know that your dog is not fully trained in sit and stay well don't even try it then in that situation yeah <laughs> then it's better to not ask for it so it's again identify the parts that could be trained separately and then we have to add them in a way that makes it you know free from conflicts and all that but uh, that's i mean if a dog 
starts to decrease the motivation for searching just because he's obedient, then I would say that you have selected the wrong dog. To begin with, yeah. Well, and, and yeah. a lot of it is caused by it's i think some of it comes to perspective because if someone views obedience as a very controlling thing or exactly. i'm making the dog you've trained it yeah so that of course i would say i agree with you yeah then if that's the way you're going to do obedience then don't mm. do obedience while you're doing detection or before you do detection mm. um if you're going to yeah. do it through like we're talking about where it's a cooperative aspect it's yeah. teaching exactly. yeah it's not going to have a problem with reward base. Yes. Uh, but th this is exactly the same thing that you, you mentioned last time with the, the, the reward training. If you train a sit and stare by pulling the leash and push, you know, uh, pressing down their, their, uh, the butt down, yeah. bottom, then yeah. it's a completely different game. So, um, I mean, then, then it will be a problem, of course, because first of all, you will end up in a conflict with the dog when you're doing that. And you will, uh, uh, so it depends on how you train it. And also, when you add it to that situation, like I said, if you have problem, uh, it, it's like if you are doing bite work and you're planning to do bite work up on the field and you're going from the car up to the field, the training area, and then uh, you uh, you have definitely picked the wrong uh, time to to train the dog to not pull the leash, mm -hmm. uh, so you wouldn't even ask him to do to walk without pulling the leash if you know that it's not trained yep. and he will just fail. Then you will have that problem, of course, because then that conflict will also affect the bite work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you have to pick uh, your opportunities and decide that, okay, this time we will focus on the transport from the car up to the the training area. Yep. But if I, if I know that I won't have the time well, then it's better to let them pull. Yeah. Yep. And not ask for it. And it's the same with detection. But it helps, of course, to have some kind of what we call functional obedience in every, for uh -huh. every working dog, because uh -huh. sooner or later you will have to have it. Absolutely. And then it's better to find the balance. So, um, I, yeah, I think that answers the question. Yeah. It depends on how, <laughs> how you train it. it. Yeah, it really and does. It doesn't it, have to be a problem. Correct. It doesn't have to be a problem if you train it a way that's no. cooperative, motivational, um, where mm. the dog isn't utilizing you constantly for information. Um, exactly. That it's not a big yeah. deal. But uh, No, and, and that's a good situation. For example, when you do the search development, and that's the goal. You want the dog to work uh, away from you and all that. Then, of course, I wouldn't start that session with an obedience session. Mm -hmm. uh, because then I would create the wrong expectations on that conflict uh, by accident uh, yeah <laughs> so uh yeah yep well Pick your opportunities <laughs> i i i mean I, I know i've kept you up way later <laughs> and i can't thank you enough for taking the time to come back and do part two of this yeah i know there's going to be lots of interest and me and you've talked about this and i'm gonna share that with the listeners so a couple of things mm -hmm. to you know, tobias is going to have a lot of great information on his website there's going to be classes lectures uh, things of that nature. He does webinars. I've, I've talked to him. We're going to bring a lot of the same stuff over to the Ford canine website. We're going to have, uh, he and I will do some webinars and I'm also going to share his information on the Ford canine website as well. So you'll have multiple locations to, to find, uh, a lot of this training information from Tobias. In addition to that, 
I'm going to put out uh, on this podcast, obviously right now, but also online, November 14th to the 18th. Tobias and I are both free to do a seminar together, a workshop. Probably would be great, a three to at least five-day workshop or seminar. Uh, if you want to host us out in your area, shoot me an email through the website, you know, 4k9.com. Uh, reach out to Tobias if you know him. We will coordinate and we will pick a location to come out and do a seminar uh, this year in November, doing it together so that way in a rare circumstance like this, our schedules are open, we can work together and provide you guys with a great workshop uh, to build your skills, to work with your dogs and be challenged and become a better handler or trainer. So again, if you're interested in that, please contact me. My email, of course, always is Cameron at 4k9.com. And Tobias's will be listed in the show notes. And again, go to either of our websites to reach out to us. Thank you so much for doing this again. I really, really appreciate it. And I'm sure we've got lots more coming. Really fun. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Everybody, thank you for tuning in to this episode of Canines Talking Sense, where it's okay to be nosy. 